0: A mutiny, a mutiny in Russia to discuss. I have on Camille Galeev, my former classmate at Peking University, um, and uh, formerly with the Wilson Center to discuss. Uh Camille, welcome back to China Talk.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Jordan. Great to see you again. So, Camille,
0: is what we saw over the past week a coup? More like
1: unsuccessful attempt of a coup. But even if unsuccessful, it is still consequential. And I would say it's more consequential than it could be in many Latin American or Asian countries of the world. Because what many foreign observers may not know or may underappreciate is that uh, army in Russia has not really been uh, a factor of big politics for the most time. An interesting feature of the Russian regime, including the Soviet period, the exclusion of the party from the big politics. There are some exceptions of course, uh, especially during um, the transfer of power, for example, after the death of Stalin. But for the most part, the army was not a factor of politics and the influence in the military was not really converted into the faction strife. So what we see here, what we see what we have seen in the past days, It was probably the largest attempt to do so, the most significant attempt to do so um, for the last 70 years, I would say.
0: Let's take a step back. What do you think were the main motivations of uh, Pergosian taking this step?
1: Great question. Um, Obviously, what has just happened, it looks very shady, but things like this do usually look shady. And attempted or successful coups, they usually involve or often involve at least some element of 4D chess by the political leadership. So, different forces try playing their own games. So, of course, uh, some people and like many observers in Russia or in Eastern Europe or in Ukraine would kind of write it off uh, or discard what happened as kind of staged events. But, but, even if staged, theoretically, even if the events were staged, their consequences were still real. For example, consider the Cornilo Putsch in 1917. It's highly probable, some would, say, some would say it's almost certain, that the events in August-September 1917 uh, were involved for the Chess by then the provisional government, Alexander Kerensky. So at least he somehow participated in it. So in a sense, the attempt of a was orchestrated by the Supreme leadership. But, but... Even if it was orchestrated, even if it was staged, the consequences were still real. So what we are going to see now, uh, I would say it's very similar. So the closest historical metaphor we can found, find, the closest historical
0: parallel would
1: be the Putsch.
0: Yeah. So so sorry. So the argument is, is, you know, some people are saying, actually, you know, maybe this was like a Putin move all along for him to be able to sort of re-exert exert his power. But you're arguing that, you know... Maybe that's the case, but even if it was, um, this leaves him in a way weaker situation um, than he was a few weeks ago.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, I could give you several speculations that are based on nothing, except for like, um, except for speculations. One speculation could be uh, that Prigozhin's coup was kind of an element of negotiation, not of internal, but of external negotiation with the West and especially with the U.S., so basically, uh, just look. If you kind of continue pressuring me even more, some group of crazy gangsters, crazy criminals, and Nazis can just maybe, if not take power, then at least take some parts of our nuclear arsenal. Catastrophe will follow. Stop pressuring me. Mm, that is a purely a speculation, but is not. But it is itself not impossible. Another element, another explanation could be that it was an attempt to scare the Russian themselves. So basically, if you, uh, if I fall down, you all go with me. So some kind of horrible, absolute unhinged rascals are going to take power. And that will include terrible consequences for everyone. That is another explanation. So, uh, and of course, um, we could develop some more speculations like this. It is absolutely possible, it is absolutely possible that a few of them have some element of truth. That is absolutely possible. Uh, and it is very plausible uh, that um, at least some factions of power participated in orchestrating and staging what we have seen. But, but, even if orchestrated and even if staged, the consequences still are real. First, first, uh, when we say orchestrated, when we say staged. We should keep in mind that uh, complex and like sophisticated 4D chess often just does not work or, or it works uh, or it goes wrong. Everything can go wrong. Um, you know, uh, my favorite story is the assassination of Emperor Paul. So basically, Emperor Paul in 1801, he uh, invited the general governor of St. Petersburg, Count Paulin. And basically told him, you see, there is uh, an attempt of coup. They uh, they basically are preparing a coup against me. He said, yes, your majesty. I know it. And I participate in it. Like, what? Yes, of course, I participate in a coup. So, um, like, I'm one of participants just to collect information. So everything is under control. Ah, great, said the emperor. He was calmed down. He decided it's okay. Very soon he was killed. And general governor, Carl Palin, was the main organizer. He basically said it directly. So um, one element element of a situation, even if the Supreme Power is actually aware of everything, it kind of keeps control. Uh, Everything can go wrong for like too many reasons. Uh, But that is more on tactical level. If we go on strategic level, it looks even more complicated. It looks more complicated because what we have seen it basically legitimizes the use of the military of direct military force in their, well internal competition of factions internal competition of interest groups, yeah. which uh, previously they tried to avoid.
0: Yeah. So we. So had if a, you uh... look
1: the previous the previous attempt that. Uh, it never really materialized, but their previous attempt at least to consolidate a base for a potential military coup, it was in Yeltsin's era with General Roflin, but they didn't even really start. They're still preparing and preparing and preparing. And what we have seen, that you can actually start it, and you can achieve very significant results. So in a sense that normalizes the use of the military for advancing your, basically, interests of your
0: faction. Yeah. So we, we did a show, I guess it must have been close to a year ago now, um, where we were discussing, um, we, you were sort of discussing this vision of a future where you have, um, you know, all the different uh, governors and, you know, private players trying to amass their own sort of independent military um, uh, chips that they could then uh, you know, deploy to, uh, you know, gain a share or secure their place in whatever the future of Russia is. And I thought it was really um, uh, far-fetched until we, uh, you know, had uh, the rise of these of these private armies and this sort of dramatic, uh, these dramatic events over the past 72 hours or so. So, um, you know, how does this tangibly, how does this sort of like the, you know, how does everyone in the system learning that this is possible, that that sort of these, tactics are um you know both legitimized as well as like can take you to 200 miles of of moscow end up uh sort of changing the chessboards and the different players uh incentives as they look um into the second half of 2023 you see
1: i think a very interesting aspect of this kind of attempted at coup or stage coup as some would say is who is doing it who is doing it because who's prigozhin basically he's an agent of the power he's an agent uh, it is not some, let's say, independent baron or some person who rose independently from Putin. It's basically a very petty, well, gangster who was uh, just for the fact of his membership in the St. Petersburg gang that took power, who was uh, commissioned by Putin to do the dirty job for him. A brute in Russia, in Ukraine, that's really the only source of his power. So in a sense, in a sense, it's kind of very revealing, because it's not, let's say, some regional interest groups or some region or some provincial actors who are taking the move against the mm, supreme power. But it is its own agents. And I think it's really, really interesting. Uh, you know, Machiavelli, uh, back in 16th century, he kind of made a distinction between two types of regimes. Uh, and uh, the ones like France, and the ones like Turkey, well, the Ottoman Empire. So, basically, what was his point? That regimes like the French one, they are relatively easy to overthrow, but it's very difficult to keep control over them. Why? Because in France, there is a lot of, like, feudal barons, basically. So, on the one hand, it's pretty easy to get into alliance with with some of them against the central power, so it's relatively easy to take control over, but once you did it, you don't really rule because there are still lots of barons and you can't do anything about that. So it's more a like baronial type of regime, baronial rule. But the Ottoman Empire, on the other hand, it would be a very different type of regime. Didn't really have strong baronial factions to the same extent. So on the one hand, it may be more difficult to defeat it because you don't have any dependent powers to get into alliance with. But once you took control, Uh, wants you to control, it's very easy to keep it. It's very easy to keep it because uh, if there was no independent power for you to conspire with, there's no independent power that could uh, stand against you now. So, So, now it's a very important part. A very important part is people from baronial regimes, like naturally, who are shaped by baronial regimes, who grew up in baronial regimes, who know baronial regimes, they generally fail to comprehend. It's hard for them another type of regimes who are more like courtier and centered around the royal court. Now, the thing is, America, under this classification, it would be baronial-like regime, baronial-run. In a sense, uh, I don't want to offend anyone, more like, like 16th century France than the 16th century Ottoman Empire. Russia, in this regard, would fall under second category, which means, which means that many things happening in Russia, they're just intuitively, and understandable for Americans. So I would say a lot of uh, political realities of the US, they are just incomprehensible for most of Russians because they are too different from what they're used to. And the other way around, uh, people who lived under baronial regimes cannot comprehend court Iran regimes and the other way around. Consider the following. For Russians, it would be absolutely incomprehensible that uh, bureaucracy, federal government in DC had prepared a genius plan of how to let's say reorganize America, uh, basically some kind, some version of the Green New Deal, but then there comes some uh, congressman from like West Virginia, Mountain Mama, and he basically blocks it. And he blocks it, unimaginable. Uh, now the thing is, uh, more Russian people, including people with resources, people with power, they they would not really, they would not really believe that really happened. There should be, there should have been some play, some 40 chess within the federal government. Uh, they wouldn't believe that uh, some senators from West Virginia, Oklahoma, Alabama, wherever, whom we would designate as barons under this classification, would really have so much saying, for example, in how, uh, in whether budget passes or not, and the other way around. So the thing about Russia uh, that would be incomprehensible for Americans is that it does not really have strong baronial factions. They exist, but they are very, very much weaker. It is courtier run to the extent against unimaginable to most Americans. So, so, when there is a uh, upheaval, when there is a, let's say, betrayal, it is most probably will not be barons who do it, because barons are weak. It is most probably will be courtiers. So, uh, paradoxically enough, paradoxically enough, uh, Kremlin may fear the most dangerous, largest danger, not from some kind of, let's say, regional separatists or like, uh, even governors or like some provincial interest groups, but primarily from its own federal, from its own agents on the federal level, because there is no one else who really has resources.
0: Let's do the courtiers first. So, um, you know. The, the sort of um Pergosians in waiting or you know other folks who um, who are in the inner circle and, and do have sort of independent um, uh, resources or means to um to I don't know do do crazy things. Like how does their um calculus change now that they've seen um you know what progosion's been able to do over the past week?
1: We cannot answer this hundred percent because obviously these guys will not uh... Share their position uh, outpourly. So we can we can only read the clues, but what we can read uh, is that uh, first first we have seen that the military uh, uprising is basically possible. It is not impossible, let's say, because uh, for the most part, most of military structures, paramilitary structures, when facing a coup, they don't do. They do nothing. I know it sounds strange, but it looks like most of military and paramilitary in the region where the attempted to t- took place, they did not join them, but they did not stand against them either. So basically, in a sense, they acted more like a part of a landscape. That's one thing. <laughs> uh, another, another is that there's quite a lot of public enthusiasm, quite a lot of public enthusiasm. Um, so if you look at what was happening on the streets of Rostov on Don, uh, when Wagner guys uh, came there, there was a lot of cheering to them. And there was a lot of booing to police who came thereafter. And it is really, really interesting because those southern regions, uh, southern regions more like Belgorod, Rostov, Krasnodar, they are really conservative, socially conservative. They are, rel- they are relatively well off. They are very much pro-war, absolutely, much more than average in Russia. And uh, they have been traditionally framed as very pro-Putin regions in Russia, very pro-Putin. But but it just shows that pro-Putin and anti-Putin likes dichotomy as kind of some coordinates that help us to measure their Russian uh, political attitude is just wrong. Uh, because where there comes another force that present themselves more brutish, patriotic, uh, more militant in a sense, it, uh, people cheer it as well. Actually, uh, it looks like people in regions that have been produ- traditionally deemed as very, very pro-Putin, they uh, prefer some kind of warlord, in this sense, to the Putin's rule. I think uh, this is very, very interesting observation. So these people, even if they did not uh, really do anything to help or to obstruct this revolt, they are absolutely willing to accept the intrusion of the military and paramilitary into the political affairs. They're basically waiting for it.
0: Truly one of the more remarkable um, pieces of this whole story were those videos of of folks cheering um, uh, the, the Wagner tanks as they were rolling into the city. I want to stay on that kind of uh, that, that insight that you, you, you made of like, like uh, the sort of old map of pro-anti-Putin doesn't make sense in this new era of, of, of wartime. Sort of, I guess, what are the, what are the broader implications of, of uh, you know, the, I guess, like revealed preference of like the supposedly most nationalist people in, 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 in Russia that you saw over the past few days?
1: Uh, You you see, how could we actually make more sense out of these videos on Rostov? They just show why these, like, preferences pro or against Putin don't make much sense. You see, mm, there is a lot of, like, discourse when people, for example, analyze their electoral maps in Russia. Oh, this region have traditionally voted pro Putin, or this against. It has some sense. It's not, like, completely senseless or meaningless. But, but. Uh, these people and these analysts, they wrongly assume Russia has elections. It does not. It never had, at least on presidential level. Why? Because elections have, an op- have options. So there can be different options. For example, uh, let's say you, on during next elections, you could potentially go vote for one candidate and or you could go potentially vote for another candidate and you cannot be 100% sure who wins. You see? We cannot be 100% sure there is still some intrigue. Uh, there is some anticipation for results. In Russia, because in America, the power, the supreme executive power, has changed as a result of elections many times. So America has elections. Russia does not, and it never had. Because supreme executive power in Russia never changes the result of elections. So, but elections are still taking place formally. It just means this is not the elections, this is the acclamation acclamations, you know, like some acclamation for Byzantine Mm. emperor. So basically you kind of succeed to power, but you still need to go through acclamation, which you will get. And that's that's uh, like presidential elections in Russia will be more properly framed as presidential acclamations. Uh, Yeltsin perfectly got his acclamations with like rate of approval of 6%, no problem at all. Putin got all the time, but, but it shows that the crowd that would readily acclaim him would acclaim other guys too,
0: and that must make some people's eyes really wide, um, who are um, you know who are potentially ambitious or, or, or frustrated with the way things are going.
1: Uh, yes, 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 and also there is another moment: is that uh, one element is standing of Putin uh, among uh, within the circle of the Russian ruling elite. Because one thing uh, he could, uh, kind of, one card he had that other did not, he could maybe potentially, potentially say uh, explicit or more like imply, like people hate you, every one of you, but they love me. So I'm the only one of you, like truly legitimate, because basically the only thing, the only reason for you to enjoy your position is because of me. I legitimize you all. People love me. And kind of that would be a very strong argument. That would be a very strong argument. Uh, But now it looks very much weaker argument than it would be even a few months ago.
0: How has Putin's decision space been constrained by by what's happened?
1: Well, on the one hand, uh, his positions are now probably somewhat weaker because other members of the ruling circle see that uh, the willingness to acclaim Putin and the willingness to cheer Putin uh, it's not necessarily all about Putin. Uh, people in general and population in the regions that were deemed as very pro-Putinist, uh, it is uh, ready to cheer and to acclaim pretty much everyone. Pretty much everyone. So it's not some unique uh, property of Putin, which makes him uh, irreplaceable for their mm, existing elite. Uh, This may not be a drastic change, may not be a dramatic change, but still the experiment has been uh, conducted. That's one thing. Uh, So now he has much less of an argument that people love me and they do not necessarily love you. Uh, That's one element. Uh, Another is that Putin will be most probably forced to do some kind of repressions against those kind of... mm, showed themselves uh, prone to supporting Wagner, prone to supporting Wagner, Uh, because uh, what the situation has revealed, that um, lots of military and paramilitary, if they did not outright support what they saw as mutiny, they did not raise a finger either. That includes paratroopers, that includes uh, much of like warrior corps, some like infantry, some parts of the infantry, which means most probably that uh, the regime does not seem uh, all these fellows as absolutely loyal when it comes regarding facing the internal enemy. So there will be probably some purges, not necessarily bloody, and some elements of repression. And I believe we're already seeing them on some of the grues- more gruesome videos, uh, usually with like churches, like cutting the throats of soldiers who would, like, uh, deemed to be pro-Wagner, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, Marx sometimes wrote, or Marx once wrote, I believe it was like Natus Brumer, that history repeats itself two times. First as a tragedy, uh, second time as a comedy. Uh, so basically, it looks more like a comedy of Carnelo Putsch. So basically, there is some kind of mutiny, regime suppresses this mutiny successfully, but the repressions and purges it has to conduct thereafter. They make it very much weaker uh, against uh, mutinies by the forces. Uh,
0: what do you think are the implications for the for the war in Ukraine? Um implications for the war in
1: Ukraine. You see, uh when I was uh, just uh, scrolling what Ukrainian authors, including those very close to their ruling regime in Ukraine, were writing many were excessively optimistic, excessively optimistic. Uh, Basically, there was a lot of, like, um, wish, a lot of desire for their regime in Russia to fall immediately and for the war to stop. Uh, I don't think, well, it obviously did not happen, and it will not happen for a while. Uh, But once taboo on using their military force Uh, in uh, internal political games have been broken. I think that the regime is now very much weaker and uh, perspectives, they look better, they look better. Personally, my uh, personal prediction, uh, my belief is that we will see a second attempt, not necessarily by the same force, quite probably by another force, but the second attempt within three, six months.
0: So. You know you mentioned earlier 1917 and um uh, you know obviously the bolsheviks came to power on the back of of uh, mass frustration and exhaustion and um uh, uh you know over the over the war with, with with germany and you know the parallels aren't exact but um camille you know this stuff better than i do uh, what what lessons uh do you think are are worth reflecting on from uh, um from kerensky's fall and uh and, and and lenin's rise and how they apply to today's situation
1: well, uh, you know, many are making these parallels. Putin himself is making these parallels, exactly. So basically, he compared uh, this uh, attempt of a mutiny to what was happening in 1917 when these, like, dark forces stabbed in the back uh, of our, like, fighting people in the army and stuff. So these uh, parallels have been already normalized. have been already normalized. Um, I think the parallel may be also You know, Bolsheviks, of course, of course, they followed the Marxist dogma, so they had to kind of frame it as a workers' rebellion. Well, there could be an element, but it certainly was not a defining element. Uh, So I think that the moving forces, at least uh, what was the actual force of Bolsheviks, was not the workers, obviously, but first and foremost, the St. Petersburg garrison and the Baltic Navy. So it were not so much their rebellious work- workers as people in gray coats and in navy coats. That's it, basically. Uh, so, um, and interesting enough, interestingly enough, in the first years after the October Revolution, uh, the Bolsheviks leaders, um, they kind of they did not even like call it a revolution. They called it October coup. So what we did was a coup. And coup primarily relies on military and paramilitary. What happened in reality? Uh, so, um, but, but once Bolsheviks took power, and once they consolidated their power base, and once they consolidated their regime, uh, they made it their top priority, top priority, to prevent any potential uh, threat from the military, basically from ever challenging their rule. That was the priority number one, I would say. And actually, uh, I would uh, ascribe much of uh, what uh, maybe Foreign observers would see as an inefficiency of Red Army or Soviet Army um, to it being optimized for another purpose, optimized for other purposes, For example, it was largely, as I think, optimized for a purpose of not challenging the rule of the Communist Party. So, for example, that means you are very heavily centralized. You don't have very much like right of decision making, a little, uh, relatively few of decisions are delegated, which kind of can hurt your fighting efficiency, but it makes you less of a political challenge. And you know what? It was successful. It was successful. So uh, for many decades, uh, Communist Party ruled uh, successfully and uh, until uh, recently there was no uh, attempt or uh, a coup from the military that was uh, anyway as close from materializing as happened just recently because all other attempts they were suppressed on the very very early stages usually even before they like actually tried to do anything usually on the stage of
0: talking um you know, other other sort of, like, lessons from history um, that you want to apply to this situation?
1: Uh, so kind of summarizing what we just, what I said about coups, just to sum it all up. Uh, coups are something that happens in relatively centralized regimes. Uh, the precondition for a coup is usually centralization, because it's, if it's sufficiently decentralized, you don't get a coup, you get a civil war that's quite different. But for a coup, you need centralization. Second, while, of course, uh, interest groups that takes power during a coup, it may legitimize it taking power through kind of appeal to the people, it's not necessarily the people who do it. It's usually done by military and paramilitary forces. People are usually a source of legitimization in actual coup. You know, I love how like Enver Pasha did it during the Young Turk revolt. So, basically, during the raid on Sublime Port, I believe it, 1913, uh, a leader of mutineers, he came to the Grand Vizier, kind of prime minister of the Ottoman Empire, and demanded him to write a letter of resignation. So, he starts writing, at the suggestion of the military and the people, tells Anwar Pasha, well, and the people, writes, minister. So, basically, in this regard, people uh, play more of a role of a source of legitimization. Because those doing the coup, they cannot just say it by their name. So number three, interestingly enough, people are usually passive. People are usually passive. In a sense that they can cheer for one force, they can at another. But paradoxically enough, in a centralized regime, they don't usually do much. They don't usually do much. So uh, during uh, such events, most population, almost all of it is usually rather passive. And number four, number four, is that in regimes that are sufficiently centralized. And sufficiently centralized, it also means that there is little power barons and a lot of power of courtiers. It usually will be courtiers. It usually will be courtiers who will do it. So, paradoxically enough, sufficiently centralized regime faces the greatest danger from its own agents.
0: Um, Any other uh, final thoughts to conclude on Camille? I think...
1: uh, Maybe a final thought about the future of Russia. You know, uh, I think that the parallel with 1917 Putin was making, it was interesting, it was interesting. Uh, In a sense, in a sense, uh, that now uh, we're probably, as I think we're probably seeing, the end of the regime that naturally evolved exactly from 1917. Because 1917, it was indeed revolutionary, a very abrupt and very radical change with the past. Because in 1970s the previous order was uh, overthrown. The previous elites were persecuted and often just physically slaughtered. So whatever grew after 1917 in Soviet era, it was just very different from what had existed previously and headed by very different elites. But after that, after that, you didn't really have revolution, you had evolution. So Lenin's regime quite organically evolved into Stalins, Stalins into Khrushchev's, and so forth. So, while Putin himself may have personally very negative opinion about Lenin and his regime, Putin's regime is eventually, mm, it is ultimately a result of gradual evolution of Lenin's regime. But, but now, quite probably after Putin, uh, what we'll see is not the evolution, uh, but the replacement of elites, the replacement of elites, far exceeding what we have seen in the 1990s. Uh, so, uh, framing it framing it as a potential fall of Putin's regime, it could be spoiling the frame. It could be spoiling the frame because what we'll probably see uh, within the next few years, it's not so much the fall of Putin and the replacement of elites in Russia on a gigantic scale.
0: Yeah, no, you had you this incredible point in one of your threads over the past few days that like, actually, you know, everyone makes fun of Purgosian for being a caterer. Um, but in fact, like, you know, some of Putin's ancestors got their first, um, uh, you know, their first, uh, uh, sort of hooks into, into power by, by also like literally doing first food service for the nomenclatura. So,
1: uh, yes, yes. And I think I find it very interesting because when I see that Putin's regime um, evolved from Lenin's, it does not necessarily technically mean that like Putin's ruling elite, it kind of evolved their descendants of Lenin's commissars. That's not necessarily true. But to the much greater extent than most people would be ready to accept, they may be descendants of commissar servants, yeah. basically. They may not be descendants of commissars, but they are descendants of people who served food on their table or guarded them or drove them. Uh, so that's what probably Ibn Khaldun would frame as a severe, kind of an interconnected group of interest, an interconnected group of families that comes to power as a result of founding conquest and then lives for a while. So uh, Ibn Khaldun, he, believed believed that Asabi usually lives for four generations. There will be usually no fifth one. And there are very rare, exceptions are very, very rare. Uh, So if we kind of accept this interpretation, if we follow this model, uh, then uh, Putin would be third generation and Sergei Kiryanka, basically the guy who appointed him as uh, the director of FSB, would be the fourth. And most probably, there will be no
0: fifth one. You know, it's a very scary thing to contemplate, right? What a, um, uh, uh, what sort of a, an overthrow of an entire uh, regime, um, not just by changing the man at the top, but but changing the entire sort of system. Like, wh- why do you, wh- why do you think that's the the, the case, Camille? Um, why if, wh- why is your belief that whatever happens next is going to be actually a much more radical? overthrowing than, you know, a radical transformation than just like a different person being on top.
1: Uh, great question. Great question. One, uh, one answer I would give, uh, because, um, regimes do fall, uh, regimes do fall, and usually we do not foresee it until it happens. So, uh, you know, there was one great book, uh, about the late USSR. I don't exactly remember the author, but I, uh, love its name. It it was forever until it ended. So that's what usually happens. That's what usually happens. Uh, and um, it's much. Uh, it's usually impossible to predict it exactly, but it will be very easily to explain it retrospectively, which everyone will be doing once it happens. So that's one thing. Uh, another, another is that when we have an interconnected group of families ruling for decades. with a relatively relatively low rate of being selected out and relatively low social mobility. Paradoxically, it makes a regime more fragile. So uh, the low level of being selected out, uh, it uh, may secure position of individual families, of individual interest groups, but it makes system as a whole very much more brittle. So I would say, I would say that the Russian ruling regime would be very much robust if it would be uh, more enthusiastic about selecting its own members out, but it does not. Uh, Just, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'll not give you exact, like, figures right now, but I'll just convey the general thought. There's Russia. There's, let's say, uh, generals in Russia. There are generals of army, of police, of federal security service, and many, many other uh, like services. So there used to be, for them, the maximum ages of retirement. And uh, I'm giving you like general direction of how it looks, not like exactly the details. For example, the retirement age used to be 60. Then Putin rises to 65, then to 70, then to 80. Then he just abolished it at all. Uh, So what do we have? Uh, Putin is naturally a conservative person who doesn't want to experiment much, who doesn't want to experiment with kind of changing the same people. He's much more comfortable to have the same people around. But but if he was just retiring them one by one and getting new ones, you'd have their ruling circle, including Zelensky, the head of military, pro-military, state security, who'd be more like of mixed age. But if you just don't do it, if you just refuse it... You will have the same of group of people, who will basically stay in power until they die, and then they'll be dying just one by one very quickly. And that is a scenario somewhat, somewhat vaguely similar to what happened in the, late, in the end of the USSR. Should I be how scared
0: of how scared for the future of humanity should I should I be of of uh of that timeline, Camille?
1: Uh. You know, uh, your question is quite revealing. You know, many Russians believe that the West, and especially America, conspired against Russia and just are plotting to disrupt it to, like, microstates. And, as I said, they just never comprehend how scared uh, most of Americans, including most of political commentators, analysts, media, are about that yeah. scenario. Uh, so, uh, I understand your concern. Uh, but, 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 uh, while I probably um, cannot assure you, uh, it's like completely safe perspective. I cannot guarantee that at all. Uh, If you are scared of a potential scenario, maybe it is, uh, it makes sense to prepare it in case if it just happens.
0: This argument has been made in the the US-China context as well, that like, just because we've seen such less transformative change in the US, over the past, you know, over our like national history, that like big shifts are not are are much more seen as crises than they are as potential opportunities, and like folks don't necessarily internalize, um, you know, the upside of um uh, of 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 dramatic change. So, um, uh, fair point, Camille. Um, I'm 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 not sure you made me feel all that much better about it. Sort of like giant nuclear power with them. Um, uh, you know, with uh, you know, undergoing its own revolution in twenty twenty four, but um, uh, you know, there's, there's I guess, it's, it's not necessarily something that um uh, anyone can really control. Yeah, that's very true. So I know Camille, you've been doing some uh, some really cool stuff about the uh, the Russian, uh, the Russian military industrial base. Um, you want to preview some of your research uh, briefly here? So basically. Um... An interesting thing
1: is just to look how the US like intelligence and military commentary evolves over time. So it looks to me at this point as if uh, currently analysts, observers, commanders, they just put much lesser focus on the issues of production, production-based military production than they used to do it, let's say, in the Cold War. So kind of if these concerns peaked probably, probably, I would say in the 1970s, It has been downhill since then. So, as a result, we have a pretty interesting situation. uh, When, for example, the nuclear status of Russia is just uh, discussed, you know, as given, you know, like uh, grass is green, sky is blue, um, sun is yellow, Russia is a nuclear power. But uh, usually in most cases, Russia being nuclear power is not being problematized at all. For example, for example. Uh, how Russia, a country that went through the post-Soviet collapse, that lost most of its machinery, that uh, lost most of its uh, supply chains, uh, when it comes against to machinery, to the military production, uh, how can it still uh, maintain uh, its existing part of the weapons of mass destruction and uh, the delivery systems, or even? Uh, produce new, new weapons and deliver systems. A short answer, very short answer would be that with uh, Russia losing its domestic machinery uh, while the global manufacturer was being revolutionized through the implementation of a digital control. So basically the mechatronic revolution, Russia has just outsourced its production of industrial equipment abroad. And abroad, in this respect, it means to the US and uh, US allies because there are no other alternatives in the world. So at this point, both the maintenance of the existing park of the weapons of mass destruction and of delivery systems and uh, their replacement, they now fully depend upon the import. Industrial equipment, in this case, case, it's mostly cutting machine tools, machining equipment, parts, components uh, from the U.S. allies, and maintenance support by them. And this is kind of the elephant in the room that, uh, to my best understanding, almost no one is discussing, and when they're discussing it, it's not in the U.S. That would certainly be a great topic of discussion, a very big topic of discussion in the Cold War. And it gets almost zero attention nowadays. I don't fully comprehend why.
0: Well, I'm um, looking forward to to reading on that, and um, uh, uh, having you back once we have a uh, an elite revolution in Russia, with um, uh, you know democracy being um, uh, uh, shouted from the hills.
1: Uh, so 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 never, so never, basically.
0: <laughs> Maybe we'll do one or two before then. Uh, Camille, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. Have a good day.
0: Give me a ball A Molotov It's a coup d'etat Generalism, a step chop Step on the line, net on the block armies marching through the streets Trust the shot, just building and it's shoved from the right.
1: It's all planned out. We'll do it tonight. First, the president and his wife. The Hooverville Ransomar take down. circuits behind bars.